Hi, this is Hunter Keegan. This is episode 28 of Down Home Fear. I had a good friend of mine come on to the show to help me out with this episode. You may remember Amy from season one and season two of Down Home Fear. She was a featured guest on several episodes and she was cool enough to come back on and actually share a story of her own and of course uh, discuss some of the horrific things that have happened in the American South over the years. I think you'll really enjoy this one. It's always good to have a another host on to uh, kind of bounce back and forth with regarding some of these stories. So with that said, we're going to get right into it and I hope you enjoy the show. Amy, thank you so much for coming back to join us for Down Home Fear. You are, I believe, the only recurring guest host who has been on this show. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure um, to have you here. And for the audience, um, we are uh, in Virginia, not unlike everywhere else in the world right now. We are under quarantine status due to the season of the plague. So <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> I liked the terminology behind that. Um, so this this episode is actually being recorded remotely. So um, we have Amy on the Zoom app, and then Ooh. I'm recording in like the quote unquote studio. So. Um, <laughs> I don't know, be advised. So if you, that's why you're hearing like a little bit different audio quality than uh, what you're, I guess, accustomed to with my dope audio engineering, rolling my eyes super hard right now. Um, hey, okay, if you've so, got it, own it. All right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Amy, uh, if you want to just kind of like briefly reintroduce yourself, if you want to, um, it maybe talk, I mean, we, we did, I think at least four episodes together yeah. previously, right? Yeah. So well, we've been around, but hi everybody. I'm Amy. I've known Keegan for many moons. I don't know, since we were kids. So about 20 years now. Oh Isn't that man. Crazy? Yeah. I can't oh, believe that's God, we're so old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, you know, we, we've been doing this a while. So I was really excited with the um, down home fear resurgence yeah. and excited to share a more lighthearted story on my side. Yeah, Amy um, has been awesome with um, kind of like obscure uh, content that's very cool. She actually recommended the Typhoid Mary story that we did a couple of episodes ago, which I had never heard of. And when uh, when you brought that up, I think over text message or something, I, I was literally like, I was like, what the fuck? Like, I've never heard of this before. And then I looked into it and I saw what you were saying. I was like, oh, this is like crazy, crazy. Crazy. Very, <laughs> very topical, unfortunately, at the moment. I was like, this uh, is perfect. Yeah, but Typhoid Mary is legit. If You have to rank just crazy normal people. Do you know what I mean? Like normal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not you know, famous. Typical is what we call it in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, not famous people. Like, they're obviously a bunch of famous people who are famous for doing ridiculous things. And this person, you know, people maybe didn't hear about her, um, but she she definitely uh, deserves... She she definitely should be in the ridiculous Hall of Fame. I um I I mean, there's obviously like a crazy mental illness component to that, right? Like, oh, I'm sure, yeah. She must have, I mean, 
such denial and just like like callous disregard for others it's so it it really is crazy so anyway if you listen to that episode (laughs) please go back and listen to it we covered it um briefly at i think the end of episode oh god i think 24 or 25 if i'm remembering correctly but it, it was the episode about the southern plague and we we gave typhoid mary an honorable mention with that um, so like Amy said, she has kind of a more lighthearted topic. I actually haven't, uh, heard anything about it. So I'm really excited to, uh, hear you go through it. Mysterious. Just, <laughs> very mysterious. <laughs> and so, um, we were just talking before we started, uh, recording this episode and we decided that we would actually go with my story first because my story is very fucked up and, um, to give you a little bit of background context, because I don't, I don't think we even, uh, I don't think I ever even told you about this, Amy. But um, there was a very, very early episode of Down Home Fear that um, has since been uh, taken down from the archives because I took down the first few episodes because of the production quality on them wasn't where I wanted it to be at. So in one of those episodes, I actually talked about a story regarding a young man named Felix Hall. And I had been wanting to come back to this story for a really, really long time. But it is kind of, um, well, not kind of, it's a very sensitive topic right now. And I wanted to make sure that I had like a a good co-host to kind of share it with and talk to about it. And to stop beating around the bush. So this story is about a hate crime that occurred in uh, 1941. And uh, a young black man was actually lynched by um, some some people who have actually remained unidentified. And the story is so obscure that if you start looking into it, you'll find that there's actually a really significant lack of information. There's a lot of ambiguity around what happened and what the response from law enforcement was. Um, So there's a few different layers of why this is fucked up. And I do want to go through the story because I I think it's fucked up, first of all, that this isn't better known uh, because there's a couple of especially unique factors with it that I'll get into in a second. And um, the other thing is, uh, you know, just in general, I don't think we've really touched on hate crimes very much in this show, which is weird because, you know, with the South, historically, racial tensions have been extremely high um you know a nice way of putting i I know right like put it mildly yeah um so let me let me get into it so um felix hall the year was 1941 and i wanted to first establish what lynching actually refers to so lynching is a extrajudicial mob action meaning that it takes place outside of the eyes of the law. Um, so this is like basically usually like a panicked or hateful response to a crime that may or may not have happened. And it's usually associated with the murder of black men in the Southern United States. Um, so it's usually by hanging. However, according to the sources that I read, it doesn't necessarily always have to be a hanging but the majority of lynchings do involve hangings if if that makes sense 
This happened in late March of 1941 in Fort Benning, Georgia, which is extremely close to the uh, Alabama border. It's very deep south. It's like, um, I guess you would call it low-lying marshland. And it's so it's like really densely forested, low-lying wetlands that are, you know, covered with uh, like swamp, like swampy areas and really dense brush and things like that. And um, this was actually in Fort Benning, which is, um, as you could probably guess, a military base. And this lynching is unique in particular because this is actually the only known lynching that has occurred on a U.S. military base in history. So it's odd that this story isn't better known just with that alone. But let me tell you a little bit about how this went down. Felix Hall was 19 years old at the time, and in late March of 1941, he was found lynched in a shallow ravine on Fort Benning, Georgia. So uh, he was strung up by his neck to some small trees, his hands were bound, and his body, once it had been discovered, they determined that it had probably been there for approximately six weeks. So this young man... Six weeks? Six weeks, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, so he had been there for like a while. And keep in mind, this is in the deep south in early spring. So, I mean, yeah, it was gnarly. Um, And as far as Felix himself, as far as some background about this guy, uh, he was born on January 1st, 1922 in Millbrook, Alabama, which is a rural town outside of Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, His mother died when he was just two years old, and he was raised by his grandmother for most of his childhood. In Millbrook at this time, and this is certainly not meant in any sort of like racial way, but at that time uh, for black men, literally the only job was picking cotton. Like that was the industry there at the time. And so his option was basically like, do you want to work in this menial type of role or do you want to take the other option for men at that time, which was essentially enlist in the the military? So he joined the army when he was 18. And uh, this guy, so Felix Hall was a very tiny guy. Um, He was five foot eight and he weighed 130 pounds. So we're talking about like a, you know, like a smaller dude, right? Yeah. Um, Okay. And so he ended up stationed in Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, where he joined the 24th Infantry Regiment, which was actually one of the first all-black military units organized after the Civil War. So the reason this was an all-black military unit is because segregation and discrimination based on race was not abolished in the United States military until July 26, 1948 seven years after Felix was killed. Hmm. Um, Harry Truman passed Executive Order 9981 in 1948, and that was like the formal notice that the military was to be desegregated. However, that policy was not really adhered to right away, just like the thing with... um, Uh, desegregating schools um, Mm. in the South in the 1950s. Like, it was formally um, abolished, but uh, obviously, like, the racism and racial tension and racial divides still existed. 
So that's just, again, just a little bit more historical context for kind of the cultural atmosphere of when this crime took place. Felix seemed to greatly enjoy his first months in the military, and he actually kept a journal. And one of the things that he talked about in this journal that um, investigators later found out about is that he kept a um, record, basically, of every girl who he was, quote unquote, sweet on. Oh, yeah, so that's really he, cute. <laughs> yeah, so but it's also dangerous, right? So okay. he, he had like a written record of uh, women who he had met in, in the area and was, you know, fond of. You kind of have these different factors starting to come into play. And one of the other factors is that he was actually a really sociable guy. Like people who knew him said he was fun. He had lots of friends. He liked to go out on weekends. He would drink, but he wouldn't drink excessively. You know, he would just kind of go out to a bar or, you know, whatever and, um, you know, have a few drinks. But, you know, again, nothing like, nothing crazy, you know? Yeah. He was also known to have a bit of a childish attitude, and he was known to play pranks on others. But again, he was generally well-liked by fellow soldiers and even his officers. So again, like all around, like good, good guy. guy. Yeah. Also a guy who's pretty, um, I guess you would say, prominent in the social scene. You know, like yeah. lots of people knew him. Lots of people were aware of him. Um, it and just, it um, seemed to like him, right? Yeah, he seems to be well liked. But again, we're talking about Georgia in 1941. And in addition to the uh, black men who were enlisted in the army, there were also a lot of white men who were also stationed at this military base. But at this time, just to clarify, at this time, they're still segregated because it's a few years before that order passes. Is that right? Yes, that's, that's okay. correct. So um, there were both white and black soldiers who were stationed at the base, but they were in like separate units and stuff. So they, they weren't um, serving in the same Got unit. Got it. Okay, so... That makes um, sense. Yeah, and so here's another weird thing, and I'm not sure if this is necessarily related or not. I don't really know how it may have played a direct factor in the murder, but he took out a life insurance policy on January 31st, 1941, and he made the first payment on the life insurance policy less than two weeks before he was killed. Which, yeah, that's suspicious. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know how people would have found out about that or it, how people would have profited off of his death outside yeah. of, you know, his immediate family. Um, but that is a that is a fact that gets brought up in the few and far between articles that do discuss this case. Hmm. So he disappeared on February twelfth, nineteen forty one, and he was last seen walking from a sawmill that he worked at. Um, again, at the base, and he was walking through a white neighborhood so that he could get to the post office, which was located in a different area of the base. And what happened next is still unclear, but what we do know is that his body was discovered by soldiers who were conducting a training exercise on March 28th, 1941, approximately six weeks um, after he had died or after he had been murdered. Here's the thing. His body had been found in a shallow ravine and it hadn't been particularly, I'm sorry, it had not been particularly well hidden. Like, let's just kind of do the math on that one. He went to, he, he vanished, he disappeared, and it, his body was in a relatively not difficult to find area on the base. 
And somehow it took six weeks for people to actually find him and start following up on this, right? Yeah. Um, and the most, one of the most tragic things about this, in my opinion, is the simple fact that the government never solved the murder. And the FBI did get involved with this situation because it had happened on a military base. And they were criticized for ignoring critical information in the case during the investigation. And I have an example of this. So um, they seemed to have ignored several accounts that said that Felix Hall had gotten into a nasty confrontation with his boss at the sawmill earlier the same day that he disappeared. So that was one of the key things that they left out of their reports. Another thing that happened is that they basically had a revolving door of inexperienced investigators who were working on it. So it's not like the case was really being taken seriously. That's so frustrating. Yeah, it, it's, it, it just, yeah, it, it sucks. And so for months after his body was discovered, military authorities told the public that his death may have been a suicide, even though a physician who examined the body ruled it a homicide. And he categorized it as a homicide on Hall's death certificate. So meanwhile, you have the military saying, oh, well, he killed himself. Also, one of the things that they said um, when he initially had disappeared was that they thought he had gone AWOL. They thought he had deserted the the base. Basically, you have all these sketchy... Conflicting, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like conflicting accounts, unclear timelines, and overall, it's just a very sketchy uh, kind of situation. So the official story uh, coalesced, and and the official story that the government was going by was that his body had been discovered by an engineer regiment conducting a training exercise. Eventually, what happened is the FBI compiled a 131-page report on Hall's murder, and they only released it in 2016, which is when I originally, I know, right? It's crazy, right? 2016? And this was in 1941, he was murdered. Yeah. So you're talking over 60 years, like well over 60 years, right? Yeah. And so they declassified these documents, but they still kept a lot of the key sections redacted. So even with all of these like formal FBI, I know Amy is shaking her head. Shaking my head. This is very frustrating to listen to, obviously. I know. I I know. Like I said, we're starting with the most disturbing story first. Yeah. Something that's interesting is that this story wasn't hidden per se. There there was actually a lot of national interest in this case, and a lot of people were outraged about it, not just members of the black community, but also a lot of members of the white community. So it was was a well-publicized story, despite the missing information and despite the lack of follow-up, a lot of people were aware that it had occurred. And people wanted answers, but unfortunately, those answers never really came about. It's interesting that there was like a, a public outcry with no results. I know. And, and so one thing that the, the FBI did determine is that the, there were most likely multiple people involved with the lynching. Um, it didn't appear to be a, a single perpetrator. After 17 months, the FBI narrowed down two best suspects for the murder, and both of them lived in Block W, which is the white neighborhood. Ironic, right? Uh, Block W was the white neighborhood where Hall had last been spotted. 
And the first sub, uh, the first suspect was a man named Sergeant Henry Green. Sergeant Green had been seen with a shotgun sitting on his front porch, and he stated that he was prepared to shoot a quote colored peeping Tom who he'd seen in the neighborhood recently. Leading up to the murder, many peeping Tom reports had been coming from the Block W neighborhood. And after the murder, the reports ceased. So who knows? Maybe maybe the peeping Tom was indeed Felix. Maybe it was someone else. Again, this was an extrajudicial action. So we don't really know of, like the truth behind what may or may not have occurred. The FBI speculated that Sergeant Green and his brother-in-law had spent the day drinking and had gotten more and more heated as they had talked about the, the peeping Tom. So they think so one working theory is that Sergeant Green and his brother-in-law had gotten drunk and they had spotted Felix in the neighborhood and uh, pursued him and, and killed him. That sucks. The other suspect is a man named Sergeant James C. Hodges. And he lived in a house along the route that Hall took to work each day. And Hall was actually last seen alive near Hodges' house. So you've got Sergeant Hodges and you've got Sergeant Green. And these are the two main suspects in the murder. Captain Marvin J. Coyle, who was the head of military police at Fort Benning at the time, said that Hodges had a strong motive to lynch Hall, but it is not known what the specific reason was, and the FBI kept that section redacted, so we don't know, like, potentially what, you know, what may have caused this, aside from the fact that there was, quote-unquote, a significant reason why the murder may have transpired. The FBI says that the info was redacted because of a law that prevents the disclosure of information pertaining to individuals who are involved with a case and who are still under the age of 100 years old and who are living. Huh. Okay. That's I don't really, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what <laughs> the state and federal regulations surrounding that are, but that's what they're saying. So there, there's maybe living relatives or other people who could have been involved with the disappearance and with the murder. And we, we, I guess just, we can't know about it until they die or until they turn 100 years old. That seems like a really arbitrary rule, like the 100 years old one. Right. The death one, I guess I could get on board with, maybe. But this kind of seems like a fishy reason to uh, not be sharing crucial information. Especially when you're talking about the death of a human being. Like a, an untimely, weird, suspicious, not even suspicious. I mean, like he was... Ruled a like a brutal, Yeah, like a brutal yeah. murder that and was like, never followed up on. Of an American soldier... Right, and and it's effectively basically been covered up, right? Yeah. For, for like years and years and years, like literally decades. So Hodges, Sergeant Hodges and Sergeant Green are the only real suspects that the FBI ever implicated in Hall's killing. Hmm. And there are suspicions that the sawmill supervisor could have been involved too, but he was never actually named as an official suspect. So it's known that Felix got into some sort of altercation with the uh, sawmill supervisor, who was a white man. Hmm. Um, but the sawmill supervisor, for whatever reason, they, they stated that he probably was, probably was not directly involved. All right. So let's talk about 
reasons why Felix may have been targeted and, um, you know, why, why there may have been some sort of mob action that resulted in his, uh, in his murder. One of the things that Felix Hall's family mentioned was that Felix was a romantic type and he would actually flirt across color lines, which is extremely dangerous in those days. Yeah. So, you know, like, I mean, he, he was just a friendly dude. He, he spoke to white men and women. He spoke to black men and women. Um, and, you know, like we were saying, you know, he, he kept a journal where he talked about some of these uh, interactions and, and people who he was, you know, romantically interested in. The word on the street in Fort Benning at the time that his body was found was that Felix had been trying to court a white woman and that he had been killed for it. There is no known gravestone for Felix Hall. And Felix's story actually, and I think this is really sad, but his story was told to younger generations of his surviving family members. And it it was actually told as a warning Mm -hmm. about the danger of... um, speaking to to white women um trying to uh mix you know race um what's the what's the word i'm looking for um i guess just to flirt or date like an interracial relationship exactly right thank you so like an (laughs) interracial relationship they, they used this story as kind of an example of why you don't do that. And I, I think that's really sad that that was, you know, part of his legacy and, and part of the way that he, he was remembered. And equally sad is that that was a valid concern in those days. And again, you know, even, even today to an extent, you know, it's not as extreme, but that's, you know, in, in a lot of areas that's still frowned upon, right? Yeah. That, in essence is the story of Felix Hall. Like I said, there's a lot of missing information. It's a relatively unknown story. The majority of the information that I just shared with you was actually taken from a single Washington Post article that hmm. had been published in 2016. And, you know, I'd seen it in the paper and I, I was reading through it and they actually they had photographs of uh, the body where it had been found. And if oh my. You, yeah, and it, it's um, it's not overtly gory or anything like that, but it is uh, it is Felix face down against the side of a, a slope, like a muddy slope, with his hands tied, and you know, of, of course, he's he's lifeless, he's dead. Um, so the the images are are kind of haunting. Maybe I'll uh, I don't know, maybe I'll post them on the Facebook page or something if people are curious to to see what the actual murder scene looked like. Um, but in any case, you know, his family certainly missed him a lot. And I mean, again, to put it mildly and the Hall family actually has their own kind of personal legend. And and they like to say that Felix's ghost still roams the railroad tracks in his hometown of Millbrook. So I guess, yeah. So I, I don't know. That's kind of nice. Is that like supposed to be a, a nice thing? I think maybe it brings comfort to the family because they feel like he returned home. Okay. I, I can dig that. It, I'm just, it's interesting because when you had mentioned that there's no grave for him, I had been curious about his family um, and what, what the reaction was there and how they, how they dealt with the situation. Cause you said that there was a lot of outrage across the U S yeah. And I, I mean, unfortunately for whoever was 
locally involved with that FBI investigation and other law enforcement entities, they, you know, they effectively swept it under the rug. That's um, so frustrating. It, yeah, it's it's really frustrating. It's really tragic. And I mean, keep in mind, there's like, this is not the only story of this happening. There's no, countless... It's not. I originally, when you started talking, um, I thought that you were going to tell the story of Emmett Till, which is unfortunately a very similar story. It's a young black boy um, who was talking to a white woman and he was lynched. I believe he was a bit younger, though. Was, it, was um, this the kid who was like 15 or 16? Yeah, I think he was like 15. Um, and I, it might have, I think it was the 40s, but it might have been the 50s. Um, but it, regardless, the fact that I could even be thinking of multiple cases that late in history or at all is really upsetting. Yeah. Um, and so I, on that note, speaking of how this was not a obscure, uh, well, it's an obscure story, but unfortunately it's, it's not a limited, it's not a limited phenomenon. So I have a couple of trivia questions for you. This is uh-huh. uh, dark trivia, but I'm, okay. I'm curious. Uh, Amy is very up to speed on historical events, much more than I am. So oh, I'm putting you on the spot right yeah, now. Yeah, you're gassing. <laughs> right now, I'm a little worried about it. No. Um, I'm ready. So, okay, so no judgments or anything, but I'm, I think you'll probably have relatively accurate responses. So prove me wrong or prove me right. How many lynchings do you think occurred between 1882 and 1968 in the United States? That's got to be like high hundreds to be a thousands. High hundreds to thousands? Yeah, the 1880s, I feel like it has to be like a really disturbingly high number. It's much higher. Oh, is it? It's oh, much higher. Okay, so that's even worse. I mean, I wish it was zero, but um, yeah, four thousand four thousand seven hundred and forty-two lynchings between eighteen eighty-two and nineteen sixty-eight. That's How disgusting. Many, what percentage do you think were Black Americans? It's got to be like eighty percent or higher. Seventy-three percent. Yeah, okay. so you're close. Um. So that's horrifying. Yeah. And, um, okay, here's a follow-up question <laughs> regarding that. Okay. Um, thank you for being a good sport about this. I know it's fucked up. So yeah. um, what do you think the top three states for the number of lynchings between 1882 and 1968, what do you think the top three states where those lynchings occurred were? Um, Mississippi, because that's where I think um, Emmett Till was from. I believe this took place in Georgia, so I'll, I'll say Georgia. Um, and I feel like potentially Texas. I don't know if we're including that in there. Fuck yeah, historian Amy. So no, you got that perfectly, actually. Oh, did I? Okay. Number one, Mississippi. Number two, Georgia. Number three, Texas. Oh, wow. Mississippi. That's sad. I know. And, and so Mississippi had 581 lynchings. Georgia had 531 and Texas had 493. Those were That's the top three straight states. Disgusting. Um, yeah, so um, it's like, it's crazy, man. And I mean, so we still see racial divides today in 2020, of course. And there, there's a lot of tension between, um, certainly between law enforcement, I think. I mean, the stop and frisk thing immediately comes to mind with um, basically institutionalized racial profiling, 
um, that people rightfully get outraged about. These issues are still alive, needless to say. I mean, I, I know you, you and I both know that. Sometimes I kind of forget about it just because, you know, some of, I mean, these murders, I mean, a lot of them were a long time ago. And it's something that unfortunately doesn't get talked about maybe as much as it should be. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I just was reflecting on what you were saying. Because I do, like, while I agree, I think a lot of, like, lynching deaths, I think the latest you said was 1968. That's actually not the latest. That's oh. just, yeah, so that's actually oh. just from the uh, um, data that they had um, in this article that I read. So that this, the, So there were lynchings that occurred after 1968, but they weren't included. Yeah, so the number is actually higher. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Well, so that's if, if that's horrible. comforting, yeah. Um, but I, I do think when we think of lynching, I, like from what we learned in school, like, you know, when we were kids, I typically associate that with a much earlier time than what we're talking about, like yeah, around the Civil War and directly after. Um, obviously, that's not the case. And I think to build on what you were saying about um, today's world, I think the like unlawful deaths targeting predominantly black men. Mm-hmm. Um, by law enforcement, echo this in a huge way. And like, while like while I agree that you know sometimes we forget about the lynchings, I think that this other piece of our society, the more I don't know modern piece, is still demonstrating um, that same racial divide, that same oppression. Um, obviously, in a different way, but it's still really upsetting, and it's still mm-hmm. something like we have to work on. I know that there are a million things happening in the world right now, obviously. Um, Racism is an important... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> it's is. It's one of the important things. But that's why I think it's important to tell stories like yeah. like what you told. I think like that, that, I think that was a good pick because it, um, even though it did happen a while ago, it wasn't that long ago. My grandparents no. were alive in 1941. No. Yeah, it, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's not really even like two full generations that separate us from that. Yeah. And um, I do have, this is kind of something that I found intriguing. And I wanted to bring this up because I personally uh, just learned about this very recently. Do you know the song Blood on the Leaves by Kanye West? So when we were in, oh, uh, so yes, I know the Kanye song, but what he sampled um, was actually, um, I like heard it. So we went to the same middle school. Full disclosure, everyone. Elementary school. At elementary school, but um, (laughs) high school for a little years. For a little, (laughs) Uh, but in middle school, that um, I had a history teacher whose name I can't even remember now, but she she was great. But the thing that is the most memorable part of that class for me was listening to the original song that Kanye West samples. Yeah, um, which is talking about the blood on the leaves, and it was so upsetting like i you know I, i'm not a big crier or i guess i am maybe i'm a big crier now but when i was in middle school like i i thought i was tough like i was not a, an emotional kid um mm-hmm. and it was so upsetting to me I, like i like cried in class because it was mm-hmm. it, like it's difficult to even listen to now so far removed to think about the suffering that people went through yeah um, it, yeah. yeah, you're so you're exactly right about um, everything you just said is correct, and I um, I don't know how I missed the memo on that one, but I just very recently learned the context behind that sample and that song because like you know I've listened to that song I, I enjoy Kanye West I've, I've listened to that song you know probably at least fifty times over the years right yeah and so the the sample is from a song called Strange Fruit 
which was initially a poem written by Abel Mirapol in 1937. And then in 1939, Billie Holiday sang and recorded it. And it actually became like a, uh, like a important and popular protest song among uh, black Americans yeah. who were fighting for equality. And I had always been wondering because I was like, because uh, in this, in the song by Kanye, like I, it's like strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, blood on the leaves. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, I was like, why the, f- like, what are they talking about? Like poplar trees for like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And of course in the song, this, this strange fruit is a man who had been lynched in a poplar tree and you know, yeah. So that's uh that's where that comes from um it's like a a very um like i understand why it became such a rallying cry and i think it's haunting and impactful but i have to a personal opinion like hot mm -hmm. takes can we do hot takes takes. um i don't understand why kanye picked that track to sample for like he's talking about like taking molly in the song yeah there's a you know there are other songs that i think that he has written that thematically would fit so much better. So it just says like a listener who appreciates the context of the mm-hmm. song. It's just a strange choice in my mind. I don't know. I would love, I like, I haven't seen, I, I have not got, uh, but yeah, anyway, what I was saying was that it's just like, I would love to know why he chose that sample, like a sample from strange fruit for that song, given that there are other songs that I felt like were a better thematic fit. So I have, I'm curious uh, if anybody has any opinions on that. I'd love to hear it. I have an opinion. So. Oh, okay. I'd love to hear it. So, so. I, actually, I had the same initial reaction that you did because the song is pretty clearly about like an extramarital affair and an abortion, right? And so that's yeah. not really directly related to um, Strange Fruit necessarily. And so yeah. I was like, yeah, that's pretty weird. I, I know that um, in his music in certainly as just a person uh in interviews and stuff you know racism is a very big part of what he talks about in his music that song is off of the same album that has black skinhead and a couple of other uh kanye's like really new slaves yeah new slaves. yeah Yeah. Um, i believe that's also on there um yeah i know for sure that black skinhead is on the same album so that album yeezus i i'm i hope i'm not i'm not going to look this up right now i'm almost positive it's off of the album uses but anyway throughout whatever album it was off of uh there is a running theme of racism throughout so i think it maybe that's why it ended up on there um but anyway not to get too much i mean i'm not knocking it yeah down home fear kanye west edition down home chicago (laughs) (laughs) but no like i i agree with it i understand that like it's a recurring theme it was just an interesting one given how some of the other songs on that album were um more intense and you know focused more on that issue specifically but i i can dig what you're saying i can yeah yeah so i i don't know i just i wanted to share that story because i know it's fucked up but it's also not well known and i do want to bring more attention to it yeah, um, I think, I think th- utilizing this platform to bring attention to people who uh, historically were not given the attention that they were given, the justice that they rightfully deserve is really important. So I, I appreciate that you talked about it. Thanks. And I mean, I hope the listeners, maybe uh, if, if they haven't heard of this before, maybe they'll look into it, maybe look into similar things that happened. And, yeah. you know, I mean, it's definitely something to think about. So that actually concludes um, the story of Felix Hall. That's all the information that I have right now. 
trees bear strange fruit blood on the leaves and blood at the root black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the I guess uh, let's uh, let's transition to something that's a little lighter. I know. Yeah. That, uh, did you did you decide to go with? Uh, you texted me something about treasure, right? Oh, I did. Oh All man. Right. Okay, I'm here ready. we go. Okay. So this so, should be lighter, people. Stay with us. Definitely a little lighter. And did you ever pretend that you were looking for buried treasure? I mean, so we grew up across the street from each other for a, a time. Did you ever do that in your backyard or front yard or where? Totally. Yeah. I used yeah. to dig around in my parents' backyard looking for treasure all the time. I, I bet they loved that. <laughs> yeah. I was fucking up their backyard. Yeah. I mean, so I did that too. Like we were both growing up in Virginia and like I, you know, would spend hours outside. I would pretend to be a pirate or I would pretend to be an explorer, um, you know, out in the jungles or on a distant shore. Uh, I had a very vivid imagination. But little did I know when I was a kid that there was a treasure buried in my own backyard. What? Yeah, you heard it right. So there was buried treasure in Virginia. Oh, okay. Not in my actual backyard. I, I was like, like how did I not hear about this? Misleading. No, I'm sorry. No. I, got, I got too excited. In our but metaphorical it, backyard. In our metaphorical Virginian backyard. Yes. So this is the story of the Beale Cyphers. Hmm. Allegedly, in the early 1800s, so there were a lot of different conflicting sources about this, and we'll kind of get into that later, <laughs> but it was either like 1819, 1820, uh, a group of Virginian adventurers, got to represent, um, they mined thousands of pounds of precious metals in Santa Fe, New Mexico, while they were out there hunting buffalo, which was a thing people did in the 1800s, I guess. Yeah, they made them almost extinct, actually. Yeah, I know. It's super messed up. If you, if you want to look up a sad picture, there's like a really famous picture of the buffalo skulls stacked by the railroad. Yeah, like hundreds of thousands of them sad um anyway we're trying to go for lighthearted. so yeah anyway so they were out there animal extinction racism (laughs) yeah some some intense things but so these adventurers they were out there hunting they came across this mine and then they went crazy for a few months um uh, supposedly they mine hi this is hunter doing a quick overdub because we had some technical difficulties when recording the original audio and Amy actually dropped out for a second, but what she was saying is that these miners had excavated several thousand pounds of precious metals from the cave in Santa Fe. But what they found, if you adjust it for values today, would Mm -hmm. be about $43 million. Okay. Which is a lot of money. That's that's some good money. Yeah, some serious dough. So I took them 18 months to mine, which is a a long time to be out there in Santa Fe. Yeah. Uh, But this group of, I think it was about 30 men, supposedly 30 men. um, They sent Thomas Jefferson Beale, 
back home to Virginia and they charged him with burying their loot in a secure location. Okay. So we're already on kind of a weird train there. We'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> but buried it in Bedford County, Virginia. So for those of you who are not from Virginia, that's right by Roanoke, Virginia, which is in the southwest area of the state, right near the border of West Virginia. So he went down there, he buried it. After he buried it, he left a safe with a local innkeeper named Robert Morris. And he told Robert Morris not to open the safe before he just headed out on his next adventure, which like, sketchy. I don't understand. I, I don't feel like- That's a lot of trust. That's a lot That of is trust. a lot of trust. Like, hey, just don't open this safe. So intrigue continues. Was this like, wait, hold up. Do you know if this was like cash money or was this like the metal? So he, he buried the metal. He buried the metal, okay. uh, gold, silver, and the jewels. Uh, but then he had a safe full of, we'll find out, that he left with this guy and just said, yo, please don't open this. I trust you. Mm-hmm. So 23 years later, Robert Morris, the innkeeper. Yeah. So okay. Robert had this for 23 years. He, I guess, put it in some back corner, didn't really think about it. Um, and then he found it 23 years later and he opened it and inside there were two letters and three long texts in number codes, AKA ciphers. Okay. So these three encrypted messages, as we will learn, included the location of the treasure, the description of the treasure and the names of the owners and next of kin. So all those married gentlemen who went to Santa Fe and mined this. So accounts kind of vary here. This gets very sketchy. Um, mm-hmm. But unable to crack those ciphers for 17 years. So it's been quite a long time at this point. Um, Robert Morris passes it on to James B. Ward of Roanoke. So you were just saying that Robert Morris had given the ciphers to another person? Yes. So, okay. Basically, Robert Morris, like 23 years after he found it, he Mm -hmm. tries for 17 years to crack these mysterious codes. Um, And after 17 years, he gives it to this man named James B. Ward from Roanoke. Okay. Uh, James B. Ward of Roanoke cracked code number two, um, which is the the code that describes the treasure. Remember, I said that there were three, and we'll kind of get into that. Okay, uh, so but three different um, cryptic things. So they're trying yeah. to three different ciphers. Yeah. Total. So he cracks one of them, but it's the one numbered number two. So not really in order, but um, he he cracks it, and it turns out he was able to crack it because it was a substitution cipher based on the Declaration of Independence. So kind of getting into some Nicolas Cage zones here. Yeah, um, National Treasure, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, For our it younger listeners, that's a movie with Nicolas Cage from like 2004. It's and everyone should watch it. The it's Secret Lies with Charlotte. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I just like really love that movie. I really like treasure things, apparently. So fun fact about me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, so, so can... So what are we talking about here? We're talking about like paper texts and letters that have like different symbols and writings in them and people are just trying to connect the dots on them? Yes. Wow, okay. Yeah, so it's, it's basically gibberish right now um, and they can't, they can't figure it out. So somehow this guy figures out that it's the Declaration of Independence, but not the one that we all know. It's a different edition of the Declaration of Independence. It's, okay. Yeah, which 
is really that random. No, for not like at all. or something? Not at all. <laughs> uh, so just kind of a weird, uh, weird way to crack this, and it maybe explains why it was so difficult to, to crack these. Anyway, um, this one basically describes the treasure. So that's how we have the numbers that I described above of the gold, silver, and jewels. And then it says in this, um, you know, translated body uh, that the directions for finding the treasure were in code one and that the next of kin of the adventurers were in code three in case the finder wanted to share it with them. So you can actually find the text of this online if you want to Google it. Maybe we could link this because it's just interesting to read. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but this all was communicated. We all know about this because in 1885, a pamphlet is printed and it details the story and it has the three ciphers calling for people to crack them. Okay. Um, so the impacts of the pamphlets are still felt today. There have been search parties going on since the printing of the pamphlet in 1885 and people have been arrested for the past 100 years for trespassing on private property, <laughs> which like, that's it's awesome. pretty crazy. Yeah, there's a, some dedication here to the treasure. So for some people, I guess trespassing charges is a small price to pay to find a fortune. But to this day, no one has been able to find the treasure and no one has been able to translate these, you know, decrypt these other two ciphers. That is fucking crazy. Yeah, so it's been over 100 years, right? It's been a, a long time. Uh, no, but so, 50 years. Yeah. It's like an absurd amount of time. Uh, so there's, and it's been almost 200 years since right. the original finding of the treasure. Right. So right. we've had some time on this, but, uh, there's a lot of debate over the accuracy of the story. Could this mm -hmm. all be a hoax? I mean, probably yes. Yeah. It's a treasure hunt. So right. it could be. <laughs> so unfortunately for all us pirate wannabes, um, several researchers and cryptographers have found a lot of issues with everything. <laughs> <laughs> it, those range from the characteristics of the two remaining ciphers, suggesting, suggesting that they're not in English, uh, to the writing styles, not matching words, uh, being included. So like certain words that are included in this, uh, in number two of the ciphers did not exist in the, in the 1820s. So one of the, like the word stampede didn't exist, I guess. Yeah, so that's one of the big issues. So uh, like language evolves over time and, and there's phrases that are anachronistic, right? That's what exactly. So, yeah. So, <laughs> Should we define anachronistic? Here you go. But no, it, like they basically, yes, language evolves, and you know, some people uh, are hesitant to believe this, given that it includes a word that should not have existed at the time that they say uh, these ciphers were written. Mm -hmm. So there's also some issues with the historical facts referenced in the pamphlet. So like Morris, the innkeeper. Um, according to the census data, actually started at the inn three years later than the pamphlet um, says mm. that he started. So that's kind of fishy. And then there's no record of a Thomas Jefferson Beale that matches the story. There are Thomas Beals, there are two that match that time frame, mm -hmm. but they're not Thomas J. Beale, nor were they Virginians etc. So just some fishy elements of this story. Right. And just to remind people of the timeline and uh, cor obviously correct me if I'm wrong, um, yeah. but as I understand it, so there, 
there were these miners out in Santa Fe. Thomas Jefferson Beale was entrusted to go back to Virginia and hide the fortune. Yeah. And then Thomas Jefferson Beale gave these notes to um, Morris. Richard Morris, yes. And then Morris tried to solve that for 17 years, right? So after 23 years, then he started to solve it for 17 years. So (laughs) so quite backwards shit. To his word that he wasn't gonna open that safe. Okay. If anybody needs somebody trustworthy. But he was in like possession of this shit for like almost 40 years. Because he had it for 23 years, and then he's so after 23 years, yeah, he's like, maybe I should 40 look years into this. later. Yeah, so it, it, I think he just forgot about it, is what the story says. But essentially, he's okay. handing this over, I believe, in like 1860, if we're following the timeline, which tracks because a few of the articles I read mentioned that he was half dead from the civil war or going crazy from the civil war um i don't know i, so, I didn't really include that originally because it, it seems um far off base but i just mm-hmm. uh, like timeline wise it's our, around the 1860s when yeah. the first cipher is um decrypted uh but then these pamphlets aren't printed until 1885 so there's a, a long time gap in the story. Yeah, for sure. One could attribute that to it just taking, like, people really want this treasure. That Morris is driven mad by the Civil War, so he's... Uh, allegedly, allegedly, yeah. And then in 1885, these pamphlets are printed and sold. So quite a bit of time for these two gentlemen to be trying to crack things. Um, one could argue, like, was this all just a ploy to sell pamphlets? So these pamphlets I've been talking about that were sold in 1885, they were sold at 50 cents each, which doesn't sound like much for a brochure in today's time. But in 1885, that was expensive, very expensive. Do we know so like, expensive? Yes, it would have been 1423 That's today. That's expensive brochure. That's yeah. So the but the, for the promise of treasure, yeah. Keegan, wouldn't you pay fourteen dollars? I mean, I do that with all sorts of shit. <laughs> in, in a way, in a way, I definitely, uh, invested in some guitar amplifiers that were complete. Uh, turned out to not be the treasure that I thought they were. There you go. <laughs> but so you know, people were, were uh, selling these ciphers and this pamphlet with the ciphers in them for serious cash at that time. Mm -hmm. So that's a theory that uh, has been floated as potentially this entire thing was a hoax uh, created to make money. But there's also this question of why, like let's put aside the pamphlet idea for a minute and ask like, why would someone bury the biggest treasure ever and then leave clues for strangers to find it rather than keeping it or making a treasure hunt for their next of kin. Because remember, in cipher number three, it has the names of their next of kin if the stranger who finds it wants to give the money over. So, and then also, why would you make the second cipher, which describes the contents but not the location, the easiest, even though it was the second? Wouldn't you want the contents to be the first and the, still the easiest, and then the location to be the second, but still able to be cracked. So yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's I'm not following it either. It, so like, falling apart a little. So basically, if I'm understanding this correctly, he the second cipher 
was describing what was buried. Yeah, so that that's how we have this number, this forty-three million dollars of treasure number, right? It's it's all based off of this second cipher, um, which, for all we know, could have just been completely made up. And then these other ciphers are not in English, as some cryptographers believe, mm-hmm. so they'll never be cracked. And it's just some hoax to sell pamphlets. So personally, I'm choosing to believe it's just some zany dude who wanted to send people on the adventure of a lifetime, even though the facts may say otherwise, but we can dream, right? Like we can dream. Have you ever seen uh, the show Nathan for you? Yes, I have. I like that It's like something he would come up with, like invents a story to get people to buy brochures. Like it's like, so, and the other question that comes to mind is like, what about the other like 35 or 40 guys who are in Santa Fe? Like, yeah. didn't they come looking for it, too? That is a great point. Like, they were they just cool with the fact that all of this stuff got buried and then they never saw it again? It makes like, no the, sense. The pamphlet makes it sound like they're these really, like, zany, eccentric guys who just don't care. We So we're saying that basically the story was mm-hmm. that these guys in Santa Fe, they're allegedly, like, eccentric weirdo guys who send uh, Thomas Jefferson Beale to Virginia to hide, like, thousands of pounds of precious metals and yeah like gems and stuff so like and that that to me also brings up a lot of logistical questions like how did this one guy bring all of it back safely not get robbed in like 1840 (laughs) roughly 1820 1820 yeah so it doesn't really line up but i thought everybody would enjoy it so that's the story of the beale ciphers which is a story that has enticed code breakers and treasure hunters alike um weirdly one thing that i thought you would enjoy hunter uh was that i was researching this and i found a lot of the documents that i used for this story on the nsa website oh my fucking god (laughs) i like i just thought that was super random uh but it's it's like they have national security or not national security what yeah national security agency national security agency yeah those are the guys who spy on all of our internet postings don't right. be mad at us, NSA. Yeah, um, cool. Yeah, but so they have like a, a huge collection of articles <laughs> on it from like the, you know, I found, I was reading stuff from the 1970s. Like there was a Washington Post article from the 1970s that I read. And actually it was kind of funny because like there's a, there's a group of people, I think they're called the Beale Society, but I might be wrong. I didn't write that down. But they go out and they go treasure hunting like every month. Dope. Yeah, I mean, I'm into it. Specifically looking for this uh, this treasure, or do they just? Oh no, it's it's specifically this treasure. I don't know if they're still practicing because that article was old. That was like 1979, Washington Post. So if you're <laughs> out there, guys, let us know. I'm very into it. I want to be a treasure hunter, <laughs> but I'm not willing to trespass and get in trouble for it. So that's a deal breaker. Oh, gosh, that is some really crazy shit. I I don't know if i've heard of this one before there's definitely a lot of examples of things like this uh oak island comes to mind yeah uh, which i think is in canada or something like off the coast of canada yeah i honestly don't know but uh yeah so that's like another famous example of like something with cryptic clues that a lot of people think is actually a hoax but others think that it could lead to you know, millions and millions of dollars of personal fortune and everything. So, yeah, I feel that like if really I won 
the lottery, I would do this. I like now I'm inspired. I have to through places. Yeah. And then <laughs> leave really confusing clues. Um, I kind of love it. So yeah, if, if I win the lottery, uh, look out for that, I guess. <laughs> That's so crazy. I, um, yeah, man, that is, I totally agree with you though. There's no way this is, this is not a real thing. It can't, like, it just, uh, I can't, like, there are too many things that don't make sense. I like, I think the most logical, cynical part of me says that it's the pamphlet theory where these people made up a crazy story and then sold it for an insane price and profited, which honestly, who can blame them? I mean, why not uh, just yeah. exploit people? It's the 1800s. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> well, it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe they started it as a work of fiction, not realizing that people would take it seriously. Yeah, maybe. That, but, that is definitely a possibility. Yeah. But it, regardless, it's uh, all pretty rough. So. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is crazy. Um, do you have anything else you want to add to this already crazy story? I do. Uh, oh, wow. So go check out the NSA website, one. And two, <laughs> if you do go trespassing and digging and you find the treasure, uh, make sure you donate a little bit to Down Home Fear yes. because that's where you heard it first. Fuck yeah. And we'll, we'll make sure that uh, you, uh, you get that money. And we, uh, I don't know, we could buy like a plaque or something. Uh, oh yeah, I like that. Trying to think of like uh, what else we need in the studio. Maybe better soundproofing or something. Like... <laughs> better internet connection <laughs> yeah send send that to me i i mean i think we can blame everybody being home at the same time for my internet because i feel like normally my internet it, it's there. mine too though it, it's definitely both of our internet i mean it's just every like the home capacity for internet right now is exceeded like it's being exceeded on every level because everybody's you know home how many people are probably streaming stuff on netflix about this cypher story right now and it's like fucking up our internet connection wah, wah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Well, thank you for sharing that story because I like, I, I think that is, that is just like one of those perfectly weird stories that down home fear thrives off of because we don't want to just overload people with, you know um heavy intense yeah we we like to mix it up and you know find stories of intrigue and not just death and murder you know um that's really wild i'm just trying to think if there i'm trying to think if i have like a follow-up question for you about this but i think you i think you've really covered like the crux of what this is all about i hope that we got it even with the cutting out, like what I, what I am really worried about for you is that you're going to go to edit this and then it's going to be like missing parts that we didn't redo. I'm 100% on board with that. I am because this is the first time that we've used zoom to record this. Um, and it says that it's recording. I'm, I'm wondering if there's going to be like stuff cut out. Oh man, that is, well, if anyone is listening to this and manages to track this down, we definitely need to be the first to know. Yeah. You can email me at hunterhkeegan at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hhkeegan. Uh, Amy, are you on Twitter or anything? No. Do you have any social media? No? Okay.
nah nah all right yeah nah. she's too cool for that shit. um nah. but if she has anything to add i'll definitely put it on our uh, down home fear social media so you can check it out that way Into um, cool well thank you amy for uh for telling us that story that is really wild and i'm glad that i didn't read up on this first because it was really entertaining listening to you explain it i think it's more fun to be surprised like i, th- I think yeah. it's always good to listen and like if we were talking about that the story of the just the bombs in the u.s oh yeah we um, that was so crazy when you told that one and i i loved it so that was episode eight i think we it called was a very it very early lost nukes and it also had the story of Trava Throneberry on it that you told. Yeah. About a, what was that? Like a... Uh, she she was somebody uh, like a, who lied about her identity, I, I believe. Yeah, it's like been an imposter. Years. Yeah. Wow. Well, definitely go back and listen to that from season one of Down Home Fear. That's a classic episode. Um, yeah. And if I you guys... Have- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to add that um, I actually do have another similar story coming up related to bizarre military mishaps in Georgia. Hmm. So uh, keep There's an eye a out. niche there. It is a niche. I don't, I mean, man, like if you start going back historically, there's so much weird military testing and stuff that went on in, in the South because, you know, for a long time it was extremely rural. So it was like, yeah. a great place to like, you know, do sketchy air force stuff um in related activities so um okay here's it i have another trivia question for you um sad trivia or is it just trivia (laughs) no this is like closure trivia okay so how many times do you think down home fear has been streamed over the last uh you just posted about this i like liked the post and i can't remember what it was i'm gonna go for like a thousand which i know is really low but i can't remember the real insulted that you would imply only a thousand people have listened to this it's like a close to a round number that's why it's sticking in my brain Sixty-seven thousand times. Sixty-seven. Yes, sixty-seven thousand times in over fifty countries. Wow. What do you think the top five countries are? All right, I'm betting the United States. That's number one. There we go. Canada. Canada is number two. Okay. Um, who else would would be interested in the American South? Can I guess like a Nordic country like Finland or Sweden? I feel like they might be into it. That's crazy that you got that one. Yes, Sweden. Sweden is number five. I'm oh so my God, that's amazing. That you got that. That is crazy. <laughs> uh, what about? I was like, there's no way she's gonna guess Sweden. I feel like, but so my day job is in marketing, and the amount of people who are interested in U.S. media um, from like Nordic countries is really high. It's just it's an interesting facet. So they actually come up in like my day job and my you know freelance stuff pretty frequently that's uh that's so interesting yeah. um, what about australia because they maybe yeah australia is number four um awesome. so you got the usa number one canada number two australia number four and sweden number five what do you think the third one is um could it be like the uk like yeah what, Man, yeah well you nailed that one yeah like for USA. some reason the location questions i've been okay at but the number questions i've bombed okay <laughs> you're good at like qualitative analysis i feel like that's yeah where my strengths lie that's funny oh that's really impressive that's awesome yeah. 
Well, Hello I mean, to the international folks. Hello to the United States folks. Sometimes people who listen to this show think that I'm being like redundant or unnecessarily explaining things about American culture. But I mean, yeah, so we got USA is number one. Number one. Uh, <laughs> Canada, number two. United Kingdom, number three. Australia, number four. Sweden, number five. And in addition to that, I was looking at all the other countries where people have streamed and downloaded this show, and it's fucking crazy. We have, like, Ghana, Russia, places in, like, Southeast Asia. It's crazy. So this That's is awesome. Very, it's very much a multicultural effort that uh that we're doing and um obviously you know thank you uh so much to everyone who listens to this show make sure that you keep telling people about it keep listening to it um we don't really ask for financial contributions these days so you know uh feel free to spread the word um you know if you're into it uh we we really appreciate that and thank you amy for uh definitely helping make that happen uh like i i can't remember if we sit at the beginning of the show or not but you have uh you've been in it this is like the fifth or sixth one you've done with me right i think i think i don't know i i, I think it's got to be five at least yeah there, this is a, i don't know it's a lot of fun to do some investigative work and and chat about it i'm into it so thanks for having me. And I, we had talked about this before filming, so I'll just do a little plug for those of you who are on the Facebook group. Definitely, if you have ideas for stories, share them. Yeah, we do look into all of those. Um, and we do get some pretty interesting suggestions from time to time. But I, I definitely want to encourage people to keep doing that. If you have anything that's related to the southern United States, you know, a ghost story, a murder, um, what else do we do on here? Uh, geographic hazards, <laughs> geological hazards, like anything weird. Yeah. Anything weird, anything off color that you think is uh, directly or indirectly relevant to the Southern United States, uh, run that by me. I'll take a look at it and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll definitely research and present it um, if, if it's good. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, um, go ahead, uh, go ahead, send those through. And I think that's, uh, that's actually all I have. I don't have anything else that I, I want to plug right now. Uh, Amy, do you have anything else? Any closing comments or anything? No, thanks for having me. And uh, this was a lot of fun. All right, cool. Um, well, thank you so much for listening to Down Home Fear. My name is Hunter Keegan. I was joined today by our wonderful co-host, Amy. Uh, always lovely to have her on as a guest host and uh we we hope to have her back soon so thank you amy and thank you audience for listening